Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Mueller here. We're going to be talking about heirloom seeds on the show today, and we have a great guest for that, Jer Gettle. He is the founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Their new catalog is out. We'll talk to Jer about some new varieties. We'll maybe even take a look at growing carnivorous plants. And, of course, we'll answer your gardening questions as well as we move along, and I hope you join in. What do you like about heirloom varieties? Is there a seed you'd like to find, have a question about? I hope you'll join in. The number to call is 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234, or send an email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Jared Gettle, welcome back. Good to have you with us. It's good to be here. Really appreciate you having me back again. Oh, I tell you what, I look so forward to that your catalog every year, and I always make sure I get it. Uh, is a late November, early December, or yeah, early December, so that um, I have friends who I give those to as gifts. It, it's they're such wonderful catalogs. How do you decide? And the varieties and the photography and everything. How, how do you decide when a new variety will make its way onto the page? Oh, it's always hard to pick because there's always more varieties coming our way than we can keep up with. So literally every day somebody sends us something or we hear about something. But uh, basically what we do is we just look for something that's unusual, interesting, colorful, has an interesting story. And if it tastes delicious or smells beautiful or whatever, <laughs> we just start moving it toward the catalog little by little, finding uh, somebody to grow the seed for us or we grow it here on our farm. And uh, just as soon as we identify something we love, we start working on it. So, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar with Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, maybe talk about, uh, talk about what your business does. Basically, our seed company uh, sells heirloom seeds, which are seeds that basically have been passed down from, you know, generation to generation. By and large, that's our biggest thing. And looking for unusual and interesting seeds, uh, we collect them, grow them, and sell them all over the U.S. and a little bit beyond. But um, we've been doing it for since 1998, and um, it's just a really fun hobby that started out as a hobby and has grown into a business, and uh, each year... More and more people get excited and involved in wanting to grow something, you know, beautiful, different, colorful. People love the, you know, the diversity of the heirloom seeds and all the colors of, you know, flowers and vegetables and herbs. Well, and you have this, this absolutely, this ca catalog is just absolutely beautiful photography. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the other things uh, relating to it, recipes and so and stories and so forth. But you've added a um, live plant division in the last few years, I think. How's that going? It's been busy. We're actually just getting ready to start ship live plants today. Well, we'll start shipping on Monday. We're going to start selling them today. So um, that's keeping us really busy. It's definitely, uh, definitely a lot of interest people. We, we mostly sell plants that you can't easily grow from seeds. So uh, different fruits and berries and herbs and um, various other things. So it's uh, definitely a lot of fun and uh, definitely always fun to see things growing in the greenhouse all winter, too. That's always part of the fun. Yeah. And uh, you're, we should probably give your website address right off the bat so people know uh, where they can go to you know, find out about the live plants or find out about the seeds. Yeah, the website address is rareseeds.com. 
rareseeds.com. All right, rareseeds.com. You recently had to uh, discontinue selling purple galaxy tomato seeds. What happened there? It was, well, we don't know exactly, but we, uh, the story started out ago, about four years ago, we um, met a guy online. Uh, he's a seed, seed collector in Europe, and he had been uh, breeding and selecting and saving seeds for years. And suddenly he had a tomato with a little streak of purple on the inside of it. And we were like, wow, that's beautiful. Um, and he, he'd crossed two different tomatoes and he thought, okay, this must be, you know, from this cross, one of them had purple skin. And then he started saving it for five generations, and uh, it got more and more purple as the generations went on. But um, anyway, long story short, uh, we tested it for GMOs. We you know, wanted to make sure it wasn't a GMO tomato in Europe for several different things. So we sent it to the top lab in Europe, and it came back negative, so that was good. Um, we sent it to a scientist here in the U.S. who, ch who tested its nu nutrient profile and said it was different than the GMO. But then on the third test, um, we came back with um, the potential of it being GMO. So that's where it got complicated. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, we decided to uh, pull the product. You know, we, we don't want to offer anything until we're 100% sure it's non-GMO. At this point, we think there's a, a good possibility that it might have some genes from a genetically engineered tomato. And so that's kind of where we decided, you know, we don't want to take the risk and start offering it we're glad we didn't uh you know start offering it until we did you know plenty of testing but at this point we you know we've had tests both ways so we think there's a chance of a you know the genes being part of the genes being from the genetic engineered tomato somehow which we don't know how that happened but uh we're uh, still trying to figure it out your catalog uh, once again of course uh, spectacular it's 532 pages and maybe describe what folks are going to find uh, in those pages. It's a mixture of varieties on the big catalog. It's a mixture of varieties. Lots of photos, of course. Lots of varieties, recipes, uh, little garden tips and short stories. But the probably the biggest thing is, you know, we want to make it look like a, a beautiful wish book. You know, and sitting there in the middle of winter, you, people can look through and see all the color and all the variety and all the diversity and let people see things they maybe never thought of or seen before. That's kind of the goal, and get people excited about getting in the garden. I bet there's a lot of uh, catalog people out there, or even book people, who would love to have uh, their catalogs or books go out to as many people as as yours does. I mean, you have, what, a million a year or something like that? A little more, a little more than that, about 1.5, 1, 1. I think, total this year, so... <laughs> Oh, oh, oh man, that that is wonderful. What makes your seeds special? Um, basically, the stories and the people they've came from, all the different places, their histories, and all the colors and diversities and flavors. It's just basically kind of shows, um, I guess, uh, you know, a whole map of people's vegetable gardens all in one place. So we kind of you know try to document a little bit of food and plants from everywhere. So it kind of you know, it's, you're not just seeing things from one place. Is the last time I, uh, one place, the last time I counted, we had right around almost 100 different countries represented. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's definitely <laughs> fun to be able to experiment and try things. We have, you know, hundreds of things from the United States, of course. But then, you know, if, if you want to try some from Thailand or Mexico or India, we've got all those and many others covered. So you get a lot of different diverse flavors and colors and things that do really well in different climates. You know, we have things for northern climates or southern climates. All that diversity uh, 
gives people the ability to find something that will do really well right in their area. I guess the kind of the coolest setup that you have because you have a lot of people uh, who grow seeds for you. They're not a, a necessarily a part of your company in one way, but they are growing seeds for you. Tell us about some of the people who grow seeds for you. Oh, we have a whole host of different people that grow seed for us. Um, we have about 200 different growers. Um, the majority of the largest portion are in the United States, but then we also have growers in places like Ghana and Kenya and uh, Japan and uh, Italy and France and the Netherlands and, uh, you know, Mexico and various other places. So we have a grower, few growers here and there all over, but um, our growers tend to be small, you know, family farms. Uh, you know, most in most cases, it's just like literally like the immediate family, but in some cases they have a few, you know, employees as well. And it's um, tr most of these people are very excited and interested in preserving their varieties. Oftentimes, the varieties that they have preserved, they grow and sell to us. Other times, we send the varieties that we need produced, and then they will grow the varieties for us. And then we also grow some of the seeds here on our farm in Missouri as well as much as we can. So uh, we work with uh, what we can do here and then with you know a whole bunch of farmers all over that um, you know are very passionate about farming and gardening. <laughs> hey, you mentioned Japan. I think your team was traveling in Japan this last year. Actually, what? one of the gentlemen we were visiting, he's here today, actually. He just got back from Japan. He's been in Japan, and I was just actually visiting with him before the phone call, and we were talking about all the different seed growers and seed plant breeders and, you know, people that work with seeds in general and, you know, exciting potential new things for the future. Uh, and, be, you know, before we take a call, I just how does somebody become a grower for Baker Creek Seeds? Basically, they just usually reach out to us by email or in person. And then we, um, you know, try to figure out what they have and how much land they have and whether it will work out. And if it works out, we, you know, get them a contract and they start growing seeds for us. Yeah. Some people, you know, are doing it on a quarter acre and other people, you know, have 200 acres of, you know, seed production. <laughs> Not necessarily all for us, but, you know, for uh you know, some people are professional, you know, farmers and other people are home gardeners that might want to have a, you know, use a, a quarter acre in their backyard and till it up and grow a couple crops for us. Gary in Milwaukee has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Gary. Well, hello. So I'm wondering if Jerry can say a few words about a rhubarb. I, I checked the website. Maybe I missed it, but I'm not even sure if Baker sells rhubarb, either seeds or plants. And frankly, I'm not sure if you're better off starting with a seed or a plant when it comes to rhubarb. But I'm wondering if Jerry can say a few words about rhubarb. Sure. And, yeah, that's one it looks like at the moment we don't have on the website. It comes and goes. Most of the seed-grown ones, they're super easy to grow from seed. Most of the seed-grown ones will be pinkish or more greenish-stemmed. Uh, there is a few, I believe, seed-grown strains that might have more reddish stems. They all taste good. But for darker stems, usually uh, plants are more successful because they're taken from clones. And the seeds tend to uh, not produce as dark of uh, stemmed varieties as what you can get from plants. So if you're looking for a dark red one, uh, plants is probably your best option. If you're looking for, um, you don't care about the stem color, if you're okay with pinkish or greenish stems, Either way is good to go, and seeds are a lot cheaper. Uh, we don't have any at the moment, but you can get them online at various websites, and we'll have them again. We have them from time to time. But uh, if you're looking for dark red, though, plants are probably the way to go. All right, Gary, thank you very much for uh, calling. Appreciate your call. 
Uh, Buzz sent us an email. Can um, you give some advice, Jer, on repotting? Oh, dividing or uh, repotting or dividing Venus flytrap and sundew. That's a good question. I personally have never repotted them, so I don't have an answer. I've grown them a few times, but I've never tried to repot or um, divide. So that's not one I know a whole lot about. Chair Gettle, our guest today, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Questions or comments for him? Maybe you visited uh, the uh, place in uh, his place in Missouri. Comment about that. Give the, uh, give us a call. The number is 800-642-1234, or you can email us to ideas at wpr.org. A. Emily Ralph, our engineer today, Jill Nadeau's our producer, and Clara Neipert's our on-air producer. I'm Larry Mailer for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Great to have you along for this edition of Garden Talk. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Jer Gettle, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Questions about uh, Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, or maybe just about a particular heirloom, uh, I hope you'll join in. The number to call is 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234, or email to ideas at WPR. Dot org ideas at wpr.org love to hear from you I, I really i really enjoyed reading about the nursery that grows carnivorous plants uh pitcher plants i think uh, tell us about that uh the owners and their operation yeah, I've actually not met them myself personally but I've read the story Michelle did the great story a great job on that and uh the operation's amazing because what they do there is basically crossbreed and develop new colors of the pitcher plant. So that's what makes their work so fascinating. Even in the wild, you'll see some diversity, but when somebody's really uh, working on it, you can really come up with some amazing, you know, lime green and pink and red stripes and streaks and speckles. So it makes picture plants, you know, a lot more interesting than just what you might find at, you know, the local hardware store, or, you know, that you order off of a typical, uh, you know, website, they actually, you know, have developed several dozen new color combinations. So it's made it pretty fascinating and they'll grow in much of the country. You know, that's the cool thing about them outside. They will, you know, grow and produce uh, their uh, pods in you know, various regions of the country, anywhere you have a, a damp spot. <laughs> Up they'll come. <laughs> oh, man. And there was a story about seed libraries. I think it was right after uh, the story about uh, carnivorous plants. Uh, what are seed libraries? Where do we find them? A lot of most major cities will have seed libraries and a lot of small cities as well. It's basically in most cases, in many cases anyway, it can be anywhere. It can be in a school. It can be in a church. It can be in a, uh, you know, it could be any kind of local uh, nonprofit. But in general, where you find them the most is actually right in the library, like our city here, Springfield. You go into the library they have seeds that are available for people that can basically check them out and they ask for you to bring seeds back in return, you know, in the fall. You know, not everybody does that, but the goal is to get people to uh, resupply the library with seeds that they grow from the seeds they've received. So it's kind of a cool concept. Um, you're able to go and look what other local gardeners have produced and uh, 
pick up a sample and then, you know, ideally return a sample in the fall of that seed or and or some other seeds. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Merritt emailed us uh, wondering how can you store your seeds to keep them fresh and also how long do seeds generally last? Well, that's a that's a good question. Storing them is cool and dry. Um, as long as they're dry, they can be frozen. They can be kept in a cool closet or anywhere where they stay cool and dry. As far as length of lasting, that again, if they're cool and dry, they can um, germinate um, at various different times depending on the types of seed. Like that uh, Judean uh, palm seed that recently germinated a few years ago was 2,000 years old. <laughs> so um, that's in, and there's been other seeds that have germinated over a thousand years old. But in general, um, most home gardeners can have success with seeds for up to 20 years or so, depending on the type of seed. Like I've grown tomato seeds that were 20 years old, and they probably still came up at, you know, 50, 60 percent. But, you know, other times it's just like any living thing. Other times things die earlier. You know, if uh, something ends up getting uh, too hot where they're at or, you know, they get damp. And sometimes seeds just are weaker than others and die quicker. So it's a good question, but there's no definite answer. Anywhere from <laughs> seeds can die anywhere from one year to 2,000 years, literally, <laughs> and maybe more. But in general, for most seeds, um, you know, two to three to 20 years, you know, depending on the type of seed. Uh, Dorothy emailed us as well. Do you, uh, wondering, do you carry seeds for party time cucumbers? We don't. That's one I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm not. What are, uh, as long as we're on cucumbers, what cucumbers do you really enjoy yourself uh, and have as seeds in your catalog? Oh, um, there's so many good ones, but my favorite cucumber probably year in and year out is one we have called China Jade. Um, It's a big, long Chinese cucumber, and it's super sweet. Very few seeds. Actually, if you grow it in a greenhouse or early in the year when there's not many insects, they'll usually be seedless. But um, then once they get pollinated, they will produce. So the cool thing is they'll produce fruit whether they're pollinated or not. So uh, if um, if you pollinate them, they'll make seeds. If you don't pollinate them, you'll get fruit either way. So they're perfect for a greenhouse. Oh, and again, the name is China Jade? China Jade. And it looks like for party time cucumbers, um, burpees would be the source for those, it appears. So burpee seeds would be where she could get some of those. I don't know anything about them. It looks like a, a new mini cucumber. Um, you have so many varieties of vegetables um, in the catalog. One of the most colorful varieties, I think, are carrots. <laughs> I And I saw, uh, I, I'm trying to think, it's a Japanese cucumber, um, man. Pukuji or something like that? Oh, yeah, the Mampukuji Japanese carrot. That Those we've grown, the longest we grew this last year was um, just over six feet long. So <laughs> I, I know we haven't reached our uh, our final total, but they're definitely some monster uh, monster carrots. Our, our best tasting carrot uh, year in and year out for ease of growth, and it'll grow right through the summer, is the new Kuroda carrot. It's also a Japanese carrot, but it's a shorter carrot, so it does well in heavier soils. And uh, for year in and year out, that's our go-to carrot for just a, a workhorse producer that doesn't mind the warm season. You know, a lot of carrots, when in the middle of summer, the flavor goes way down on them. And these maintain, you know, a pretty good flavor all through summer. So that's one thing I like about the new Corota. And they're juicy and crispy. But there's so many good carrots. I, I, love, uh, I love a good carrot. Uh, 
a lot of the carrots do better in the fall, but the new Corotta will grow well, you know, in the summer. Ah, and there are so many varieties of corn. What's the key for successfully growing corn in a, you know, a small garden? Um, well, it, the, the biggest, that's the challenge is that, you know, there, it, to grow it in a small garden, it's hardly worth it unless you have enough space to really, it's, it's good to get a taste, but it does take up space and pound per pound, it's kind of a light producer compared to like zucchini or other vegetables. But, um, other than the biggest, the biggest challenge a lot of people have is keeping animals out, keeping deer out, keeping raccoons out. Other than that, you water it and feed it well and it, it grows like crazy. But, you know, a lot of people, neighborhoods have raccoons or deer. And they love especially sweet corn. So that's that's the biggest challenge. <laughs> I, I tell you, some of those corn, uh, sweet corn varieties they have in there are, I mean, that Hopi um, turquoise corn. It's a pretty one. Yeah, that's such a pretty corn. Oh, my gosh. And I think the prettiest, my at least the prettiest photo I think I've ever seen of corn uh, uh, plant uh, is the uh, glass gem. Glass gem is such a pretty corn, and every oh. ear is different. There's no two ears alike, so that's what makes it fun. The colors are just so brilliant and so pretty. It's uh, people. That's always about our top selling corn every year because people just love to grow it. It's when you open them, everyone's different too. So it's great to grow with your kids. It's great to grow for you know ornamental, but you can also. It's not a sweet corn, but you can either pop it or you can also grind it for eating, but it's not a sweet corn. A lot of people just grow it for ornamental purposes, but uh, it's also, you know, makes a great flower corn or a popcorn. I I tell you, that is the most beautiful ear of corn I've, I think I've ever seen in my life. I it, They are just absolute with so many colors and, and, uh, and glass is kind of a, a good starting term for that name because they, they seem to almost shine like glass yeah it's very it's a little bit translucent so that's what gives them kind of that glassy texture oh. you can kind of see into the kernel a little bit oh man it's uh, it's an amazing uh, plant well tim in green bay has something for us so let's go there hi tim thank you for calling hey larry i, I just wanted to um Thank your guest for all he does with his organization. Um, I help out at uh, Heritage Hill State Historical Park in Green Bay, and we really rely on his organization and other ones to help us in our period gardens, knowing what to plant, you know, so that our, our gardens are historically accurate. Um, and so it's a great place for us to go to to actually get those seeds that we know were being planted, you know, in, in the area throughout the, the 19th century. So I just want to a plug for that. Thank you very much. Uh, Tim. Oh, thank you. You're, you're in a beautiful area over there. really appreciate that. So it's I always love going to historic gardens and seeing everything growing, you know, all, all part of the period. That's so neat. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. And I just uh, wanted to... Uh, it reminded me that you do a, f a fair amount of of work with um, I don't know what you'd call it uh, philanthropic work. Let's put it that way. I I know you send free seeds to uh, some of the poorest countries. We try to supply um, seeds to various different organizations um, each year. So uh, you know a lot about several thousand projects every year. We try to support with seeds. Um, 
So it's basically everything from, you know, seeds go overseas and then also seeds go to school garden projects and food garden projects, uh, you know, prison gardens, all sorts of educational gardens here in the United States, too. So it's our goal to try to try to uh, anybody that requests seeds, we try to get them um, any nonprofit organization, um, educational organization and humanitarian organization. We try to get them seeds, anybody that can use them. So that's our goal is to provide everybody that asks for seeds for their nonprofit. We try to keep up with the requests coming in. Uh, Jerry Gettle, our guest founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Questions, comments, maybe an experience to share? I hope you'll join in. The number to call, 800-642-1234. 1-800-642-1234. You can email us. The email address, ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. You know, I'd love to smell the Black Magic Chocolate Cosmos. <laughs> does it Does it really smell like chocolate? It does, yeah. It's an amazing plant. It's uh, There's only a few plants that have that fragrance, but that one definitely has a really strong chocolate uh, essence to it. Oh, I, I've got to get my hands on some of those seeds. Uh, but yeah, they're they're beautiful. And uh, they definitely do better in a cooler summer than we have here. So they would even do better up your way. Uh, well, Black Magic Chocolate Cosmos are on my list uh, for for sure. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying them out. And it was surprising to see seeds from dandelions. But they're not your everyday garden variety i might say why why are these so special i think they're even pink yeah um dandelions uh used to be developed in japan like um for colors domesticated i guess in japan like in the 15th century and they've all but disappeared so the ones we have now are actually all wild varieties all the domesticated dandelions i i don't know of any like ones that were developed for their ornamental purposes but these two varieties we have we have a white japanese one which is beautiful. They make a big snow white bloom. And then we have a pink dandelion, which is basically two thirds pink and one third yellow. And just, you know, it's from Central Asia, just a fantastic dandelion to get started around, you know, your garage or your shop or whatever. And every spring it'll come up with, uh, you know, unusual looking pink dandelion flowers. People always, always love and are amazed to see a pink dandelion. It's just a a novelty that's, really fun to think about and watch, you know, bloom in your uh, spring gardens every year. Well, they look uh, beautiful. And, and by the way, they're, they're not going to spread like our typical uh, dandelion. Yeah. They're a little bit shyer, uh, shyer spreaders. They're kind <laughs> of, uh, but uh, I try to get them to spread a little bit, but uh, unfortunately <laughs> they, the patches stayed kind of small. And, you know, just as an aside, one of the things I, I love about the book, and all the stories and all the wonderful photos and so forth, um, the uh, recipes, you practically have a recipe book within the book, um, within the catalog, I, and the dandelions, there was a pink, um, uh, there was a, a recipe for pink dandelion salad, and that... And I looked at that and I thought, man, yeah, if I get my hands on what a what a uh, great salad to prepare and and uh, you know you have company over, there would be some great conversation about that. 
Yeah, people are always amazed by, you know, you know, not just pink dandelions, but things that are in different colors than they're used to, whether it's an orange watermelon or that's what makes these seeds interesting to me is, you know, you can get things that you just don't see every day. Linda in Wausau has a question. Hi, Linda. Hi. Um, yeah, I was wondering, I picked up the catalog, but I couldn't see if all these seeds need a specific zone to be planted in or anything. So on all the seeds, primarily the zone is based, well, on perennials, it's more based on zones. On annual seeds, it's more just based on temperature times. So um, the majority of the seeds in the catalog would grow fine where you're at, but it's just, you got to plan the the season. So like, for example, uh, like, like apples or, uh, you know, uh, roses oftentimes have zones because they're a perennial and they'll freeze out. Whereas like lettuce, you pretty much just got to figure out the season to plant it in or tomatoes so that the zone doesn't matter so much unless you're in a very, very far north zone where you have a like zone two or three, zone four, that might, but you know, zone four and zone four and on, usually you're good to grow most anything in the catalog. Your exception would be some of the watermelons, uh, some of the melons you want to go with the smaller varieties. If you're in the north, uh, the larger varieties can be pushing the limit for, uh, for getting them to produce. So the biggest thing, the same on tomatoes, if you're in a northern zone, um, go with the smaller tomatoes. Other than that, um, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, and melons, pretty much everything else will do fine. You know, most of the squash will do fine um, in the farther north zones. But again, when, when in doubt, um, going with the smaller fruited versions um, is always a um, good place to start. And if the smaller melons do well, then, you know, try a larger melon. Linda, thank you very much uh, for calling. Let's take a call from Marcus in Milwaukee. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Larry. So my question for your guest is, does it make sense to start planting seeds that might be from a uh, heirloom varieties further south that might be a little hardier as um you know, the seasons and the climate is changing. I'm in Milwaukee, and I guess I was just wondering if that would make a difference because we are seeing uh, what appears to be a longer start to the year. Definitely um, seeds from hotter climates, as climates change and as even on a, a exceptionally hot summers, you know, Wisconsin, even though you're far north, you still get warm in the summer. So varieties that... Um, are from farther south tend to take the heat better and not necessarily, you know, just from the U S but also like if you get varieties from like uh, Southern Japan or in Asia, they tend to survive the heat spells better. Some of them, the only exceptions will be some of the things from way far south, like from Mexico or near the equator will have daylight sensitivity issues. So that that's the only challenge, but most things, as long as they're from a moderately Southern climate, like Southern U S Southern Japan, a lot of southern China, southern Asia. As long, but when you get too close to the equator, some crops won't grow well in the north because of daylight. But in general, it's a great idea, though, for areas that have hot summers to grow varieties from the southern regions, but not all the way to, uh, like, if you go to southern Mexico or far south, they tend to not produce well in the north as well in, in general. Thanks, Marcus, for calling. I was thinking about my old friend Pam Yankee, who's a farm um, reporter, has a has a series of great farm shows, and she was talking about uh, a farmer who planted some corn <laughs> this last about a week ago, 
And uh, she said, well, somebody had to try it, I guess. <laughs> Just a touch early for planting corn here in Wisconsin, but with the kind of um, climate we've had recently or the weather we've had recently, I think somebody get, decided just to give it a heck of a try anyway. Uh, Aaron emailed us, what's the winter sowing method Winter sowing method for starting tomatoes. Here in Zone 5B, Aaron was planning to try this starting at the end of March or early April. Winter sowing, and but starting it in end of March, early April. Um, so, yeah, we start tomato seeds inside uh, here in Missouri right around the end of March, mid-March. Um, anytime you want to start them. If you want to direct seed them into the ground, though, you want to wait probably till you know, the 1st of May to direct seed into the ground. But if you're starting them in the house um, or inside, you know, at a sunny windowsill or in a greenhouse, uh, anywhere from the middle of March to the middle of April would be fine. But in general, probably right late March is what I would recommend. But you can also direct sow, um, especially earlier varieties. You can direct sow in the ground, you know, after the 1st of May. Yeah, it's... Um... It, it's a it's a bit of a trick, or it's a, it's a bit tricky sometimes with some plants. I was thinking about green peppers uh, plants. Um, if you plant them, you know, if you get, you put them in, or you've got the plant in the ground, and then there's a, a cold snap, or a bit of a cold snap, the plant will survive, but then you're, oftentimes you're not going to wind up with any peppers. Yes, definitely. So yeah, it's it's uh, on tomatoes, you know, and, and peppers and eggplant in general. Um, if you push it too early, you'll you you know. But you, the other option is to have some backup plants. You know, worst case scenario, you lose your tomato plants. You can always direct seed. We've done that many times, um, and it'll put you back. We found it only puts us back two or three weeks. So say you normally get tomatoes at the end of July, you might be the middle of August by direct sowing. Jerry Gettle, our guest, give a call with your questions and comments. Uh, Jer, of course, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, number to call 800-642-1234, or you could email us to ideas at WPR.org. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Jared Gettle, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Questions for him? Join in. Give a call. The number is 800-642-1234. Or you could email us to ideas at WPR.org. I just wanted to take a, a quick minute to thank everybody who donated during our winter member drive you and your community, you know, you depend on public radio for independent journalism, for refreshing entertainment, and it's support from people like Janine in Cottage Grove who make this essential service possible. If you miss the drive, still time to join in with your gift at WPR.org. And when you do, might ask for the WPR T-shirt for 12 bucks a month. 
Or you could join me on, and ask for the WPR sweatshirt for $30 a month. I've got one of those coming. You play an important role in keeping Wisconsin informed, inspired, and connected. Thanks a lot for your partnership. Again, WPR.org. Well, we have Charlene in Northeast Iowa with a question or comment. Let's go there. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Larry. This is Char- Thank you very much for having me. Sure. I just wanted to say that I have been growing the Baker Creek seeds for about 10 years now, uh, just to make sure some fun veggies, two-foot-long Chinese red beans, I think, that grow great. And... Uh, um, so I wanted to thank you. I was excited when I tuned in to hear the, of your guest. I do have a question. Um, you were speaking about the glass corn earlier, uh, which made me think of I have been growing the striped japonica, another beautiful for foliage corn. Um, and I'm wondering, that's a flint corn. Is that something I could also pop? Well, actually, uh, yeah, thanks so much for all your kind words. But, yeah, I don't think it actually pops real well. You might be able to get it to pop some. A lot of the corns will pop some, but I don't think it's a – you'd have to test it. I, some people get it to pop and some d- don't. Um, but most of the time it's more just ground for flour. But you could try – you could give it a try. Some people have gotten it to pop, but it's not it's not super successful popping. But you're going to love the look. <laughs> sure. It's a beautiful corn, and it's, it's also great for grinding. But, you know, you may get it to pop. Some people have, but it's not. Uh, it's probably not a top choice. Uh, there you go, Charlene. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Uh, let's turn to uh, Dave and Toma. Dave, hi. Thank you for calling. Yeah, good morning. I have a question. I have tried several times to grow tomatoes inside preseason. And I've tried different lights, LEDs and incandescent, and I always use new potting soil. And I use these old cake things from Walmart that have the nice plastic lid. And uh, my cor- or my tomatoes, they always get about one and a half, two inches high. They're as big around as a as a pin, and then they die. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> what do you think, Jer? Um, yeah, that could be multiple things. One of the main things is if it's in the house, oftentimes it doesn't get enough light. Sometimes the artificial lights work. Sometimes they don't. Um, that's a good question. It, you know, it, tomatoes can be finicky. You know, moving them their location, it could be a, a, an issue with not being warm enough. It depends on how warm your house is. Most people's houses are warm enough. It could be a fertilizer issue potentially. But, um, yeah, that's a good question. There's so many different things that could potentially be. One option, though, is to start them very late, you know, just get them barely started and then transplant them right out, you know, start them like three weeks before and then transplant right when it's time instead of starting them real early. You know, even a, even if just a little sprout will give you a week or two start. So um, that's one option is to start them, you know, right when it's basically time and, and put them out in the day as much as you can, you know, um, on warm days, keep them outside as much as you can um, because the natural light usually makes them grow a lot better. Yeah, could be a water issue too, maybe too much or possibly not enough water. I mean, watering, you know, to get those seeds going, and what, what what do you suggest on that, Jer? We usually just water them once a day good and then let them dry out a bit and then water them the next day as long as it's not too hot. But yeah, I think you know, there, it could also be, you know, uh, um, you know, a fungus or, you know, something causing them to dampen off. Uh, but, you know, have them outside, you know, as much as you can, you know, start them late. 
a lot of times people get them started when it's cool and dark still, you know, start them late and put them outside as much as you could in the day would be uh, helpful and then bring them in the evening. Dave, good luck. Thank you so much for calling. You can turn in to 800-642-1234, email to ideas at WPR.org, get you on pretty quickly. Michelle in Fort Atkinson uh, emailed us. Two years ago, they ordered the watermelon beef steaks because they heard about them on this show, and they were amazing. Great taste and huge tomatoes. The only problem they had was keeping them water. They demand a lot and keeping them upright. As the fruit got bigger, they had to add additional stakes to keep the plants up. Uh, uh, she would recommend them, uh, Michelle would recommend them. They were fun and delicious to grow. So talk about watermelon beefsteak tomatoes. They're a great tomato. Any of the big beefsteak tomatoes, though, do take a lot of support. What we usually do is we'll take like three of the T-posts. They're the green metal T-posts you can get at the farm store. They're very sturdy. And then, you know, hook a cattle panel or a horse panel. It's one of the, it's like a, a very sturdy piece of fencing. And um, you can get about a, oh, a 16 foot piece for about 20 some dollars and a couple of T-posts. And for your bigger tomatoes in particular, you just uh, put that in the ground and then tie the tomatoes or clip them to that fence and then print them a little. And that will support any amount of weight generally and keep them off the ground. Because if they go on the ground, you'll, you know, you'll lose most of your fruit. So that's the easiest thing we found. There's there's cheaper methods, but that's the easiest, most sturdy method. It, anybody pretty much can do it with, you know, if they have if somebody to give them a hand, you can easily put them up. Uh, anybody can put them up if you have a, somebody to give you a hand for a few minutes. And uh, that keeps you uh, off the ground and uh, growing well. And watermelon beefsteaks are just delicious. They get their name from tasting kind of, uh, to me, they taste a bit like watermelon. They're so sweet. <laughs> and I haven't grown those. That sounds uh, wonderful. There was another um, one that I've tried. I've had various uh, over the years. Black uh, the Brandywine tomatoes uh, tasted good for a while, then they didn't. And 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 um, there's a black Brandywine tomato in your catalog that I think has an interesting history. I think their creator was Dr. Harold Martin. Yeah, that was a really old one we get from one of our friends we got a number of years ago, Dr. William Moyes Weaver. And that one's been going for somewhere around a hundred and some years, but uh, it's a, it was a, a beautiful kind of, it looks quite a bit like a brandy wine, but it has the dark kind of a brownish blackish skin and flesh and uh, super, the dark tomatoes have a super intense flavor. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and the the uh, the the history behind the black brandy white I thought was was really kind of fascinating too. You a little story about it in your catalog for sure. Yeah, it's always fun to you know keep the stories alive. So much of the stories and family memories you know disappear unfortunately with the old varieties, but uh, we try to document it whenever we can and keep the family stories living. Yeah, it's really fun. We got calls on uh, we get calls on ground cherries from time to time. Maybe describe them and and their uses. I know you have some in in the catalog. Yeah, ground cherries are a Native American plant. They grow in other places as well, but 
um, oftentimes in certain areas, people can, you know, walk out in the meadows and harvest them in the wild, but often, you know, oftentimes they're harder to find and they're smaller fruited. So uh, the domestic ground cherries, you, anybody can grow them in your garden and they're kind of like a little tomato, but they're inside of a husk. And the flavor is a little bit like tomato, but it actually tastes more like apricot, pineapple, kind, kind, kind of combined with a berry, kind of a, a strawberry taste. So you had to have this tropical mixed fruit flavor. And for making preserves or jellies or even fresh eating, um, they're delicious. But especially for preserves or jellies, they make the most thick, intense, delicious, like apricot, pineapple, berry flavored jelly of any uh, fruit I know. And they're also super easy to grow. If you can grow tomatoes, these are even easier to grow. Yeah, and you, you have some great recipes sprinkled through the book. Where do you get those recipes? Uh, a lot of the recipes come from friends and like and like Dr. William Moyes Weaver has done many recipes for us. And this year we feature a lot of recipes from our staff here. So a lot of our staff members came up with their family favorite family recipes and we included them in the catalog. I know there's one for uh, <clears throat> that I'm I'm going to try um, blackberry jalapeno jam. It sounds really good. Have you have you tried it? I did. I believe last summer I had some when the lady made it, and it was tasty. Uh, uh, I had it on a piece of bread last summer. It was really tasty. Oh, man. But, uh, I, I It just sounded so, and the, the recipe was so good, or looked so good to me. Oh, my my goodness. I actually, I've looked through, I was thinking about some of the recipes uh, in the book. Uh, the... Um, Here's there was one for a Tuscan white bean soup that sounded wonderful, um, and there was another one for nasturtiums, um, a green goddess dressing that features nasturtiums. Yeah, that's my favorite nasturtium pesto or dressing. They have the most delicious, fresh, a little bit spicy, not hot, but just a hint of spice. And just such a refreshing flavor uh, for pesto or dressing. That's one of my favorite, uh, not only flowers, but food crops. It's just amazing. And it has an unlimited supply of leaves. And then, of course, the flowers are great in its garnishes or in salads. You know, anything, anywhere you know, want a peppery taste of flour, they're perfect. But the, the leaves themselves make one of the best toppings, whether you, you can chop them onto pizza like basil or pesto or in salads, you know, multiple different ways. Any way you use them, they're delicious. Cauliflower is a, another featured um, vegetable, of course, in the, the book. And, and it's, um, I think in the, in the book, it says something like our favorite spring crop. <laughs> cauliflower. yeah, cauliflowers are, are one of our really um, mainstay, main producers for a food crop here on the farm. Right now we have a whole bunch of them in a greenhouse. Um, we And they average in size uh, three to five pounds. Uh, we sometimes even get them bigger. But uh, the big old white cauliflowers are the easiest thing we know to grow uh, other than, you know, you have to have cool weather. And other than that, you know, they produce like, as long as the weather's not too hot, you know, like below 85 degrees, once it gets about above 85, 90 degrees, our production goes down. But when we grow them in the cooler seasons, they are number one, besides pr probably cabbage, that's another competitor. But for, for compared to broccoli, though, cauliflower for us, you know, way out produces pound for pound. I was interested in the Romanesco uh, Italia. It's sort of... Um... Well, it's an Italian heirloom 
with uh, beautiful, yeah. Beautiful. The heads are different. I mean, you know, the, these are uh, almost uh, you'd say stunning green. Yeah, stunning green, and they're spiraling little heads. So it's it's just beautiful. The difference is. Um, they're delicious. They're magnificent. But the the production, the size of the heads, instead of having a five pound head, you'll probably get more like a pound, a pound and a half head. So it's uh, less production per square foot, but super delicious. Yeah. Jessica in Fall River emailed us last summer. Their hardiest variety of cherry tomatoes came from volunteer plants. They remained on the vine until late October, November last fall. Jessica didn't stake them, and they grew, uh, you know, along the ground, but they didn't want to waste the fruit, so they ended up staking and harvesting and freezing. (laughs) All right. Yeah, oftentimes just volunteers, especially cherry tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes are very aggressive. (laughs) She said the ones they started from seed or previously were sown at the from the store tended to get blighty and didn't produce as well. Different varieties, you know, that makes a big difference on what you, you know, what you grow. And sometimes when you're planting cherry tomatoes out in the garden, it will be a cross between other varieties that you might've had as well. So that can affect it. You know, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, the small uh, fruiting ones that come back every year on their own, oftentimes they do kind of get established and uh, you'll get a, some people have them every year, you know, you, you let some go to seed and they, come back up on their own each year and many gardeners just kind of with cherry tomatoes just keep a continuous supply that way and mary just had a wish well, emailed with a uh, sort of a general question should you start your seeds indoors or directly sow them outside i guess that dep- depends on the plant the you know that you're going to wind up with yeah generally most crops i think do better just direct sowing we do uh start a lot of plants though as well because we have the space and we have the greenhouses but uh, but for direct sowing many crops uh, like pumpkins and uh, cucumbers and beans and many of your larger seeds are better to direct sow smaller seeds start out smaller so sometimes the little tiny plants can get lost in the jungle of weeds that come up. But besides that, either one, if you can keep the weeds under control, direct sowing is always great. But um, the, the weeds are the challenge with the small seeds. Like, you know, the tomato plants are oftentimes smaller than the weeds when they come up. So it's, you know, that's, that's the issue. Other than that, uh, either way works great, though. We do a lot of both. <laughs> but big seeds are usually better for direct sowing, although sometimes we um, start those as well. But, you know, our, the best way to do it, actually, is to start some early and then direct sow some. And that way, if something goes wrong with either method, you uh, you don't you don't lose them all. Yeah, exactly. Jared Gettle, our guest today, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. The the catalog is the absolutely phenomenal, and I hope you have a chance to uh, take a look at it, or just go. You can go online to to his company, rareseeds.com, rareseeds.com. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio.
Great to have you along for this edition of Garden Talk. Larry Mueller here. Our guest today is Jer Gettle, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. They offer over a thousand varieties of vegetables, flowers, and herbs. So as uh, we talk with Jer, I hope you'll join in. What varieties of heirlooms do you like to grow or maybe eat? Be part of the conversation. Give us a call. The number is 800 642 or send an email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. I had a question from uh, Max and Plover, sort of a, a more philosophical or philosophy question in a way. Wonders if you could talk more about the the philosophy of people being able to save their own seeds instead of just relying on corporate ag. And Max wanted to thank you for your work. Well, yeah, appreciate the comment. And uh, yeah, generally, you know, up until like the last 50 or well, probably more like 100 years, pretty much everybody saved part of their own seeds. You know, it was, you know, very common, at least, you know, up until 100 years or so ago. Uh, you know, when America started getting more industrialized and uh, more and more people started working away from the farm and the garden and didn't have as many gardens, um, less people were saving their seed. But it's really important because it not only keeps local varieties alive and local culture alive, but it also keeps the local food security. It also adapts the varieties for the local climate. You know, if you have varieties that you've been saving locally for the last, you know, 100 years or 200 years even in many cases, you can find varieties. You can keep those varieties alive and going and adapting to changing climates in hot summer areas and cool areas. You have varieties that actually survive and do well. And uh, not only that, of course, you're preserving your, you know, your history and your culture. Stella in Sturgeon Bay has something for us. Hi, Stella. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I. you've been talking about uh, there's been a lot of questioning about whether to start things inside or, or, or direct plant them, direct sow them. And my husband um, makes homemade newspaper pots um, for starting for starting inside, we have a greenhouse for starting in the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're really wonderful because when it comes time to plant them in the, to transplant them, you don't have to disturb the roots. You just put the whole thing, the newspaper pot into the ground and the roots grow right through it. Oh, well, that sounds amazing. Yeah. That's a great idea. I, I love it. How does he do it? Does he just cut the paper up and then sort of wet it down to kind of mold it? Well, he cut, he makes strips, and then depending on the size of the pot he wants, he he's, he bought a wooden. It looks like a, a pestle, uh-huh. um, and and it has. And then there's a little circular, hollowed out um, bottom, and so you wrap the newspaper around the around the pestle, and dampen just very lightly dampen the bottom, and and fold over the bottom, and then press it into the into the mold Ah. but he also to make bigger pots he just takes a glass bottle makes a little bit wider strips wraps them around the bottle bottle dampens the end and folds the ends over and presses it down with the bottle that right that is pretty cool jerry i don't imagine you could do that yourself because you've got a lot of uh, plants going 
No, that's definitely a good idea, though, for people that can do it is uh, doing the newspaper pots. Or they'll probably dry out maybe just a little quicker, but uh, that can be actually a good thing or a bad thing, depending on, you know, what you're doing. But uh, the newspaper pots is something that's easy and, it, you know, you can cycle it and get it right into the garden. So it's uh, definitely a, a great idea and it's definitely a big savings. Terry in Dallas, uh, your turn. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Thanks uh, for taking my call. Last year, I grew beets, and they're called, I think they're called Badger Flame or Badger Red. I'm not, I can't remember. I've been looking online all over, and everybody has sold out. Anybody have any ideas where I can get a hold of some of them seeds? <laughs> that's what we're trying to produce, but it's, uh, it's a hard one to produce so far. I think that's why the shortage of seeds, um, it's definitely um, a, a shy seed producer unfortunately but uh we are working on it we're hoping to have seeds again in the future i know other people are as well uh but it definitely uh it definitely uh, is a little bit challenging to than compared to a lot of beets you know it definitely takes um a, a good alternative is the, the golden beets um that's a good alternative and i'm gonna see um Okay, it looks like row seven seeds actually row seven seeds.com actually it looks like they might have it available right now in Ro small quantities. Oh, there you go, row seven seeds. Terry row, row seven, uh, number seven. Oh, row number row seven. Number seven uh, seeds.com. It looks like they have it available in like a hundred seed packets you can get. Oh, Terry, there you go. Thank you so much. Um, and they are beautiful beets. Oh, oh they're delicious, too. Super delicious. Yeah. Uh, Rana in uh, Cameron, we'll go to you next. Hi, thank you for calling. Hi, Larry. Hi, Jer. Um, Hi. My question is, when you're bringing seeds in from overseas, what process do you have to go through to get them into the United States? Well, there's different requirements for different seeds. Most everything requires just a simple phytosanitary certificate. Other things may require an import permit, depending on the country, too. It all varies on the country. You know, countries like Canada, you might not even have to have a phytosanitary on certain things. Most things, probably yes. Uh, Mexico has its own requirements because they're our neighbors. But then when you go out of those areas, it gets even more complicated in general. Uh, so some countries, you will have to get an import permit. Other countries, you have to have disease testing. Um, on certain crops, not everything, but certain crops, and it varies from year to year. Suddenly, you know, you might have to have disease testing on tomatoes. Um, and then other years, you know, other crops will have to have disease testing. And then there's certain crops, especially related to like okra and hibiscus, that whole family is extremely hard to import without treating the seeds with like a chemical process. So we don't usually offer any seeds that are imported from like okra simply because, um, and, and other hibiscus relatives, simply because it's not usually from most countries possible. But there's it's lots of different restrictions and lots of different um, different methods depending on where they're coming from. Yeah, that makes sense. Rona, thank, Rona, thank you very much for calling. Uh, let's go to David in northern Wisconsin. Hi, David. Hi, I have a question. I live in a very wooded lot, and I have very little sunshine. I get at most a half-day sunshine in some spots. And what vegetables would you recommend that I could perhaps get some success with? And you're... Mostly, no, yeah, ahead. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Mostly leafy, leafy vegetables. The fruity vegetables are tend to be more challenging. So uh, leafy vegetables, small radishes, 
Um, you can always try things like cherry tomatoes, but it's it's uh, anything that requires fruiting takes more energy and it can be difficult. But leafy vegetables, lettuces, bok choys, uh, mustards, uh, turnip greens, um, the fruity, and, and then some flowers as well, like nasturtiums would be great. Uh, violas and pansies would probably get by okay. But uh, the fruity vegetables, um, I would go with the smallest ones possible and, uh, you know, just see if, put them in the sunniest spot possible. But again, it's going to be limited production if, uh, if you don't have enough sun. Yeah. And sometimes some of those early vegetables that we have, um, because, you know, maybe the, the trees aren't leafed out as much yet and so forth, you get a little more sun uh, earlier in the season. Some of those early um, oh, of course, now radishes might be an example. Uh, peas might be an example. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Uh, that you might give a shot for, David. Uh, at least give it a try. Well, you know, that's what gardeners do. They give it a try. Thank you so much. You know, we haven't mentioned onions at all in the show. And what are some of your favorite onion varieties? Uh, my favorite is the Ishikura. It's the green scallion type onion, Japanese uh, green onion. It gets about the size of a leek. It gets pretty good size. And uh, those are my favorite for eating. I, I just love the, the big, long green onions from Japan. But I also, uh, you know, love all the onions. But for day in and day out use, those are the most uh, reliable to have them year round almost, uh, you know, be able to produce them, at least in a greenhouse outside. You know, you can ha they'll grow all summer and all spring and all fall. Whereas, you know, most of your other onions, they come and they produce in that certain window and you harvest them and you store them, but they're not fresh like when you can harvest the fresh green onions. I was uh, struck, and I haven't, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but the the giant moonflowers, the, the photo you have in the catalog is really striking. There's a young gal. Maybe one of your kids. Yeah, our, <laughs> one of our daughters, yeah. One of your daughters holding these two moonflowers, and then there's the moon is in the background, and these moonflowers is striking white and larger than her head. They're monsters. They can grow, you know, six, seven, eight inches across at times. So uh, a massive, <laughs> massive flowers. And the, 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 the only thing is you really don't see them in the day. So you got to go out in your garden at night, but since they're bright white, they do show up, you know, well, and if the morning is cool, they'll stay out in the morning some the next day too. If it gets warm in the morning, they go away pretty quick. Oh man, those, they are, they are something to, to see. Um, and somebody else asked about oregano. Uh, and certainly, I know you have oregano in, in the we catalog. Do, yeah. yeah. What are some r recommended varieties or types? We just, have, we just have two. We just have the regular oregano volgare, and then we have the Zaytar wild oregano. So it basically has a slightly different taste, but pretty similar, you know, overall. They both can be used for the same types of stuff. But I know there is a whole host of oregano you can get from plants, uh, all different types and stuff. But we pretty much just grow the typical culinary varieties, and they're both delicious. I, I mean, I love love having oregano in the spring and summer. It's always amazing, but super easy to grow. Um, once you get it grown, it might be a little bit of a challenge to get it dug up if you want to quit having it. But uh, it, it, you can't get rid of it, but it is, uh, it is uh, aggressive, <laughs> and you can put it in your little spot, and it'll come up every year in that little spot. So it's... Uh, Definitely something that is good for perennializing in your uh, garden. 
uh, Katie mailed us uh, back to the process of saving seeds. Uh, is it as simple as pulling seeds out of a tomato and drying them, then planting them the next year? What does she need pretty to much, know? Yeah, pretty much you can just dry them and save them. Uh, there are techniques like on tomatoes. We usually uh, grind the tomatoes up and let them sit with their pulp. And you need to have enough of it so it doesn't dry out, but enough like uh, like a cup or two cups of tomatoes. You grind them up, put them in a, a, a cup or a jar, let them sit for like on average about two, two and a half days. And then you, uh, once it gets good and moldy looking on the top, you just pour water over it and stir it up and the seeds will sink. And then all the pulp uh, washes away, which will make cleaner seeds. It will also help get rid of any disease that might've been on the seeds. So that's what we do. But um, the fermentation process makes the seeds clean. But you, to be honest, you can't just save seed on a paper towel and plant them, and they'll do, usually do just fine. Yeah. <laughs> the, your operation, uh, tell us about uh, your operation in Missouri. The, there's the size of it, and you have a lot of people that work for you right there at, at the place. Yeah, we have about, here at our farm, we have, well, we have two places. We have a about 30 acres, about 10 miles from us. And then we have the place here. And um, it's, it's, it's again, probably about about 50 acres, but it's not all under, under production. And we have about 30 greenhouses total. And then we have our seed store here, a couple of warehouses and some seed equipment and uh, other, other outside buildings. And then in Seymour, we have our warehouse where we do our shipping. And that's about a 100,000 square foot building um in seymour missouri just down the street and um, we have about total just over 100 employees average we range just just a few over 100 like 105 employees a <laughs> little different from when you started back when you were 17 years old yeah definitely it's grown <laughs> little by little and uh, lots of interest though in uh you know food and uh, flowers and people uh, are continuously excited to you know find something new and uh it just it just gradually expands, you know, with uh, with interest. Teresa in Sparta has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Teresa. Hi. Thank you for the call. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, we have a problem last summer with hornets, yellow jackets, in our compost pile, and um, we was trying to get rid of them. We sprayed pesticides inside and rays and whatever. And now we're, I'm thinking, can we use that compost now um, because it's got pesticides and things in it? It may still have wasps in it. I doubt it won't have wasps in it. Uh, they die off from one year to the next, and they typically do not go back to the same spot. Um, but, um, Jared, comment on the... Um, yeah, I, as far as the pesticides, I don't know. I'm guessing it would probably have broken down, but I don't know. That's a, uh, you know, that would be actually probably a question for the company that produces the the raid or whatever pesticide if they have any data. They probably have some data on how long until it, it breaks down, and whether it is okay for food the following year. Um, I'm guessing it probably has, but I don't know. That's a, that would be a. They may have some data on that. On the other hand, you can't have you know hornets around your house either, or wasps. I mean, if you're getting stung, that's uh, you know that's definitely not good either. I mean, either way is a safety risk. But I would I would probably see if they have a number on the can because I don't know how long you know. I, I doubt it has a real long life, but I don't know. That would be I, I, that would be a hard question. I doubt I doubt if it does have a long life. But it's worth it to take a look at the uh, can and actually make the call. Um, 
Oh, Rebecca emailed us on your website. Uh, she says you used to have uh, a great reference tool, a growing guide. Is it still there? The growing guide on the website, I think we've kind of moved it under each category. So, like, if oh. you go under a seed, uh, we'll have growing tips under each category now, I believe, instead of, um, I think we broke it up. But I, you may still be able to get to the, the master file somewhere as well. But, um, yeah, if you go under each category, it'll have, like, marigold growing tips. And then you can click on the growing tips there. And then at the once you've clicked on the growing tips there, you can click on growing guides and that will bring up a whole bunch of growing guides. Uh, so that's probably the easiest way is just go onto any item and click on it and then click growing guide. And then you can, from there, you can pull up all the growing guides. Uh, um, good, good points. Do you, oh, uh, wondering, do you, do you still garden with your family? Do you have a little garden pot of your own family to, for the family? We, we just have gardens all over the farm. So it's literally. <laughs> Anywhere we can get a garden stuck here or there, we have gardens all over. So we're always, uh, especially spring, summer, and uh, fall, but especially spring and summer, we always are gardening uh, here and there, growing something. And uh, in the winter, we, you know, we're always growing something in the greenhouses, of course. And you have, uh, and folks can visit uh, your... Yeah, we're, we're open year-round um, here at the farm uh, weekdays. Uh, Monday through Friday, we're open year-round, so... Uh, Basically, it's like open eight to four in the winter, and then the spring and summer and fall, we're open eight to five um, here at the farm. So people can come and just buy seeds directly. People come and buy seeds uh, on a, any warm, sunny day. It's crowded this time of year. We had like eighty degrees, over eighty degrees, a couple of days ago, and then it cooled off a little. And tomorrow, and then you know, it's starting to warm up again. And then you know, next week we'll be busy again. And whenever it turns warm, every gardener. <laughs> And their neighbor wants to get out and get seeds. And, you know, whenever it's warm, it's everybody gets excited. <laughs> well, uh, Grant emailed us wondering about establishing. He's tried to establish tarragon with no luck at all. Uh, what's the best method to establish it? Maybe as an indoor garden. Yeah, tarragon, I, I've never really did much with the French tarragon. So that one I don't know. I've done the Russian tarragon and it just grew like a weed. So. We had it grown in a bed outside, and it grew like a weed. I didn't really care for the flavor that much. I don't use tarragon much, so we ended up eventually getting rid of it. But uh, so I, on the French tarragon, I don't know. I've never, I've never attempted it. But uh, I know the Russian tarragon. We just sprinkled some seeds, and it just grew and grew and grew, though. So I don't know about the what type he might have. Um, and I saw there's a segment in there, and I haven't thought about this before uh, or noticed it, I guess, in past in the past, uh, radishes, fall radishes, these huge radishes. They can grow huge. Yeah, the Sakura Jima radishes from Japan, we have, uh, we've harvested them almost around 20 pounds this year, so they can get <laughs> monstrous. How do they taste? They taste pretty much like a, a radish, you know, a winter <laughs> radish, like a daikon, kind of a crispy, a little more crunchy than a spring radish. But other than that, you know, they just pretty typical radish taste. <laughs> I I love that. Uh, I love that idea of a twenty pound <laughs> radish. What's your favorite vegetable, by the way? Oh, that that varies. Right now, at the moment, it was probably Brussels sprouts, but uh, uh, you know, it, it varies throughout the year. It's continuously changing. I uh, I, I love carrots. I love. Um, for growing vegetables in the winter, I think my favorite thing to grow, though, is cauliflower, probably for winter vegetables. I just love growing cauliflower. But, um, yeah, oh, it, it varies. Uh, 
I, I, it's hard to pick. <laughs> yeah, and it sort of depends on what's in season right now. Whatever's ripe and when whatever just became ripe is what I'm really excited about, or whatever's <laughs> blooming right then. You know, it's like uh, it, it it varies literally with the week. Are there somebody else wondering? Are there any of your catalogs left? I, I you see them in bookstores and so forth. I we do. have them in bookstores, and they can still get them from us too. So yeah, you can get them in Barnes and Noble or. Uh, a lot of different stores have them um, stocked, but um, you, we still have them as available as well, both catalogs. So. And, yeah, and I've, I've got both the catalogs. Uh, and the um, website, again, is rareseeds.com. That's it, yes. Uh, and people can also follow us on social media. We have a lot of people. Uh, about On Instagram alone, we have over, like, a million people a month <laughs> that watch our Instagram channel. So that's uh, – people love – Love our Instagram videos. We have some how-to. We have some fun videos. Uh, every day, pretty much, we come out with a new video so they can see what's happening on the farm. Do you, and what's the Instagram? How do you do we get? Oh, if you just get on Instagram and search Baker Creek Seeds, you should be able to find us. Oh. I think it's Baker Creek. I think it's Baker Creek Seeds is the handle, I believe. But if you just search on Instagram, Baker Creek Seeds. But we're also on TikTok and Facebook and whatnot. So. <laughs> Everywhere. Jer. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking it. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it. And let's get flattened, I guess. It's about that time. <laughs> right. Jerry Gettle, uh, owner, founder of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. And uh, he'll be back and we'll talk with him again. Monday on the show, we'll talk about elder abuse, how to spot the warning signs and how to report it. We'll also take a look at the latest in dementia treatments. In the meantime, uh, have a great weekend, but stay with us. Lots in store on, the, on uh, Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Larry Mueller.